Hello and welcome to the Eddie Podcast. This is where we share stories from dads who have faced challenges of raising a child with a disability, or have lost a child, or have a child with significant mental illness. The conversations are raw and real, and sometimes not easy, but our aim is to inspire and connect, to provide some hope, because in the challenges that life throws your way, I think it's helpful to hear from other dads who are going through it or have been through a similar challenge. When we first talked about Eddie having his own podcast, the reaction I'd also get was, well, who would want to talk openly on mic to a complete stranger about something so personal? Well, in this first series, it turns out there's at least six people that want to do this, and Grant Morgan, who we'll hear from today, was always destined to be our first guest here on the Eddie Podcast. I heard him speak on Refringer's podcast, an accountancy firm, about his son, Jack. That would have been probably about two years ago now, and it wasn't long after Jack passed away. I was inspired then about how Grant was able to talk about Jack so positively and was able to talk about the tough stuff while sharing the inspiration that Jack is by being more Jack. Grant is certainly a force for good and we're delighted to have him share his story here on the Eddie Podcast. Grant, welcome to the Eddie Podcast. Thank you for having me. Before we get to the story about Jack, tell me about your background, your working life, family life. How have you come to be here? I'm the youngest of five, born in Muswell Hill, raised in Muswell Hill, had a very happy childhood. Father managed to flee Nazi-occupied Vienna in 1938 and arrived on these shores uh, thanks to Adolf Hitler, bizarrely enough, because his idea was to rid Eastern Europe of Jews. And before he came up with his final solution, he decided that if you had some money, you could give it to the Austrian government. And he laid on trains to get children out of Europe. And my father was on one of those trains called the Kinder Transport, which is uh, quite a famous story nowadays, which is very flawed thinking, because if you want to eradicate a race or a nation, you don't let their children out, because all they're going to go and do is multiply so if it wasn't for the kinder transport and if it wasn't for this brilliant country letting peter morgan or peter morgenstern as he was then at eight years old into this country you and i wouldn't be having this conversation now um school wasn't for me not that i wasn't bright enough i didn't have the passion for education so I left school fairly uneducated and without a qualification. And after a number of particularly menial jobs, but I was writing freelance, a lot of satirical journalism, if you like, for the likes of Viz and Private Eye, because even without my education and my limited desire to study, I was given the gift of language. I genuinely don't know where it came from. And to this day, I'm a real pedant when it comes to the written and the spoken word. And that led me into hospital radio. But sadly, none of my writing put food on my parents' table because I was still living at home. I ended up in 1991 forming my own agency called Louis Kennedy. The backstory is that I would write freelance with my dear, dear friend, Ricky Simmons. And Ricky's middle name is Louis. My middle name is Kennedy, and we wrote under the pseudonym Louis Kennedy. 
without a clue what it was going to do. I just knew creativity, social good, and over time, what I and a great collection of people, we established the UK's leading agency in corporate and social responsibility and cause marketing. So what we do is we facilitate partnerships between big brands and big charities and then work with both parties to develop big fundraising initiatives. And our work thus far has delivered circa quarter of a billion for charity and social enterprises and, and not-for-profit. I'm sure there's another podcast in there trying to understand how you went from not knowing what to do to then working within you know, corporate social responsibility, which was probably a new thing coming, coming through at that point. That It was on no agenda. We almost created it ourselves. The term CSR, the term cause relation, serendipity, some hard work, some luck along the way, some chance meetings. So talk about family, you're married... I'm married to the beautiful Emma. My football team won the league at Anfield in 89 in the May. And then in the December, I met Emma. It was a fantastic year all round. <laughs> and we will have been together 33 years next year. We're coming up to our 29th wedding anniversary. And we have four children. Jack, Jack Harry. Joshua Benjamin, Sam Joseph, and Charlotte Amber. And we had four kids under the age of four. Three boys, one girl? Yeah, three boys, one girl. We had decided that we wanted a big family. We both came from big families. Emma's very much blended. Mine, wholly functional, although now at 55... I realise how unbelievably dysfunctional my family was and is. But at the time, it was just us. We wanted five, but we had three and four together. So Sam and Charlotte, twins. And then we decided that was it. <laughs> Emma built me a shed at the end of the garden, pretty much like we're in now. And it was probably the best contraceptive in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Putting your husband in the shed at the back of the garden. Well, signing it off when you got four kids under the age of four. Yeah, I, I've I've said this before, so anyone who's listening who's heard me speak before will know this story. But I always I always liken the young Morgans to the Von Trapps in that we went out myself, M, Jack, normally on a on a buggy board, Joshua in the buggy, Sam and Charlotte in a double pram, and of course we had dogs as well. So you could imagine what we looked like in the park and we got invited nowhere. So we're here to talk about Jack. We are. Talk to me about Jack's early life and, and the things he kind of got up to as a... Yeah, Jack was mildly autistic. We ascertained very early on that he had a high-functioning brain, was always inquisitive in how things worked was obsessed with these shows around air disasters and the capturing of the black box and understanding the rationale behind why a plane would crash and how they would then put those pieces together. Sort of diametrically opposed because 
great scientific brain, great maths brain, but also loved music and, and dance. And those two aren't normally inextricably linked, was gifted the most phenomenal brain. Super bright, was one of those children who, and it couldn't have been further removed from me, although Emma is is very bright academically. Jack was one of those kids who could just look at a paper or a book the night before an exam and fly through it. And And it is a gift. Always did very well within education. Was a good boy, quirky. Very early on, I never thought that this child would be taken early with cancer. I thought he was given this brain so he could possibly find a cure for cancer. And how wrong was I there? So very lugubrious, very entertaining, very funny. Sometimes we would laugh at him rather than with him. But for all his brains, just some of the simple things. I remember my wife bought him one of these juicers because he was very into his fitness. He's very into his shape, what went into his body, his training, had the most phenomenal physique. And I remember being in the TV room and Emma had bought him this juicer and I heard, mom, how do I turn it on? And I looked at her and I mouthed, 11 A stars at GCSE, but he can't turn the bloody juicer on. And that crystallized Jack. He was a lot of a magnet. Other human beings were drawn towards him. He had this infectious smile and he would light up a room. And he had a penchant for the ladies. One of your happiest memories of, of him sort of growing up pre-adolescence? That's a really good question because I have many. I have lots of memories of him taking things apart and putting them back together. I do remember coming home one summer's evening and very fortunate we had this tiny little house, Emma and I, and tiny garden. And Jack, it was maybe his second birthday. He'd been bought from the early learning centre, this Thomas the Tank, I'd like to say, backpack. But what he had done, he'd found lots of components around the house and turned it into a leaf blower. <laughs> and I remember coming home and seeing him in the garden with this makeshift leaf blower, working the shrubs, working the grass. And how old was he? Couldn't have been older than three, between wow. two and three. I also remember taking him to Curry's or somewhere like that. And we couldn't leave until he'd kissed every Hoover goodnight. So I told you he was mildly odd. And there were there was lots of neuroscience going on there from a very early age. I do remember him being a very good boy, kind, great manners. Some of that's nurture, some of that's nature, and quite an aloof older brother. As far as he was concerned, Joshua was an idiot. Sam and Charlotte were young. That sort of superiority complex stayed with him for quite a while until Joshua joined him at university. And then that whole dynamic changed because two years when you're little is huge. But suddenly you're 20 and your next sibling down is 18 and you're both at the same university. Those barriers are, are sort of taken down. 
what was your relationship like then sort of through, through the adolescence, teenage years? Jack and, and I had the most phenomenal relationship from the day he was born to the day he left this world. We'll come on to talk about his diagnosis and the journey we went on together. But some of our most special times were actually while he was poorly. We had similar interests. I saw a lot of me in him. You're a father, you know, you, you see a lot of yourself in each of your children at different times and in different ways. I, I marveled at his, I'm going to say genius. And it was, I marveled at his genius. And I always wondered where it came from and how it was going to best be channeled. He wasn't gifted great health. He had a form of colitis veering on Crohn's. It wasn't Crohn's. He contracted salmonella later in life, which affected him. He wasn't constantly ill, but he didn't enjoy the greatest of, uh, of health. We all as a family have different blood clotting disorders, and he had one of those. But to your question, we spent a lot of time together. We went to Arsenal together. I ran a children's football team, and he played for that club. I didn't manage his team. We had an, ex an exceptional father-son relationship, but that's not unique. I've got I'm blessed that I have an exceptional relationship with all of my children. And I think when you lose a child, one of two things can happen. It can split you or it can cement you. And we were already a tight unit and it's made us even tighter. Talking about Jack's diagnosis, how did that come about? Jack was very into his health and fitness and in 2017, he was probably in the best shape he could have been physically and mentally. And he went to Mexico with his then girlfriend, Olivia. And he came back and he rang Emma. He said, Mom, I've got a bit of a watery eye. And she said, well, take yourself to the doctor and see what he says. He rang Emma one evening. This must have been in. August, I'd like to say, maybe September. So, mum, I've been to see the doctor and he said, I've got blepharitis, which is an eczema of the eye. Take some cream. I'll see you in six weeks. I'm not going to use the word he used, but he said, that's nonsense. He said, can you get me an appointment with a consultant? And Jack, to his last few breaths, always maintained that we know our body better than anyone. He pretty much self-diagnosed that day and he told me that this was sinister. He had no medical training, none, but he was very well read on any subject that he wanted to be well read on. Mm. Emma did get him an appointment with a consultant and a few meetings on, he was diagnosed with what turned out to be a nut midline carcinoma so nut is the genetic makeup midline is where in your body that appears and the carcinoma is a tumor and he had it in the right eye between the eye socket and the bridge of his nose and by the time he was diagnosed which was october the 24th 2017 it was already secondary 
he already had a lump in his neck because path of least resistance, it needed to go somewhere, went down to his neck, almost immediately started at the Marsden with chemotherapy, intense chemotherapy, followed by intense radiotherapy, which took us into January, February 2018, following which he was 100% cancer clear. Taking yourself back there must be really tough and I really appreciate you sharing with, with us and the people listening to the podcast. How did it feel to be told that? So you'd had Jack self-diagnosed, which is incredible, knowing what we know now. To hear that news, what came to mind, you know, because you've got three other children, you've got Emma, you're running a business. So if I walk through that day, we went to the consultants in the afternoon and Jack had always been very protective of us, me especially, because he knows how emotionally sensitive I am. And we walked into this consult into the consulting room and he said, right, I'm going to go in and hear what the consultant has to say. I want you two to stay here and then I'll come and get you. He knew that I wasn't going to be good with this information and he didn't want me to break down in front of him. So he was called in. It seemed like eternity. And we were in this waiting room. And he came out five, ten minutes later and said, right, can you come in? And he looked at me, he said, it's not good. And I held it together. But we weren't told that Jack needed to go home and get his affairs in order. We were told that he had this tumour and we were going to be recommended to see someone at the Marsden and we were going to go there from here. And I'm taking in this information and my glass is always half full. So Jack was going to be fine. Whatever's thrown at the Morgans, we'll get through it. And I remember turning to Emma and in hindsight, it was quite an incredible thing to say in that moment. I said, let's not forget, we've got three other children. And whatever happens from here on in, I never want them to say that while Jack was ill, you disowned us. Let's just be mindful of that. And we stayed true to that through the entire journey. Even when he was ill and I was doing the dad thing and Em was doing the mum thing, we never, ever lost sight of our other three children. You know, I think just in the short time that we've known each other, that ability to quickly assess the situation, and you probably didn't know why you were saying what you were saying at that point, and it comes back to the tightness of your family. Where does that all stem from? Was it your, was it the was your father's sort of setting up his stall here, as it were? And was that something that was natural, or did you just with Emma? Did you and Emma go? This is how we're going to run our lives, or innate? I think is the is is the answer. I don't think that we're born with a prescription. I haven't really discussed this until this day with you now. And yes, looking back on it, it was quite an incredible statement to make but it sort of shaped the next part of the journey for us mm. and also both Emma and I have always been able to compartmentalize and that's exactly what what we had to do in this situation there was no throwing our toys out the pram Jack needed us and we became Jack and Morgan centric didn't have the capacity 
for anything, and you'll know this from your own experience, mm -hmm. yeah. you don't have the capacity for anything other than the immediate, for the here and now. Everything else becomes redundant, superfluous. And I think anyone listening to this, whatever situation you're going through, to have that presence of mind to go, to compartmentalize in a positive way mm. in, the, in a tough situation for the benefit of everyone. Because your relationship now with your other three children is stronger because of how they were treated during that. I think siblings of any child that has a disability or a condition, um, you know, they're always going to feel like they're on the periphery or, you know, but how they interpret those signals and how that. So I think that's a tremendous bedrock for, for people to hear. I thank you. And I agree with you. And I know this isn't a therapy session, but I was long before Jack was diagnosed, I was already on my, on a, on a personal journey because my, I loved my dad, but he, he was a difficult man by virtue of his start and he was intolerant and he was impatient. And I wouldn't like to say he parented through fear. And believe me, I did love my dad greatly, but I had recognized a lot of traits in him that I could see in myself. And I never wanted my kids after I'd left this planet to say, yeah, we don't really want to turn into the man dad was. So I was already working on myself before then. Then we get this diagnosis and all that business about keeping negativity out, not sweating the small stuff, holding a mirror up to yourself to be the best person you can be. Well, that all kicks in immediately because you don't have the capacity. And I use the word capacity a lot. You don't have the capacity for anything else. And maybe I'm jumping forward to, to go back. My kids asked me, a fantastic question. They said, would you still have married mum if you'd have known what was going to happen to Jack? And I didn't even have to take a breath. I didn't even have to think. Said, of course I would have married mum. What Jack delivered to us all in his 22 years has shaped the person that I am now and the people that you are and will become. Because the learnings that we have garnered from him being with us are exponential. And I'm grateful, supremely grateful for the 22 years that we had. And I'm very grateful for the man that he's helped me become. Absolutely. 2018, he was told it was all clear. That must have been a good moment. It's a great moment. We went away as a family to... Canary Islands. He was bald. He was pale. He was thin, but he was cancer-free. And we had a great holiday, the six of us. And his girlfriend came out for a few days as well. And he spent the next few months building himself back up to look better than he ever had. I said earlier that he was in his best physical shape when he was on that holiday in Mexico but he got himself e into even better shape he was a really focused disciplined human being and if Jack was going to do something he did it and nothing would stop him he didn't like to use the word brave he didn't like to use the word fight <laughs> but it was a fight when did the cancer come back and what was... So he went on a bit of a voyage of discovery, went to Hong Kong, 
went to Australia, jumped out of planes, told his mother he'd jumped out of a plane once he'd jumped out of a plane. Good lad. Because Emma was probably there thinking, right, this thing tried to kill you and you've survived it. I don't need you tempting fate. We don't need any natural selection now, given what we've been through as a family. Mm. And lived his best life. Went back to university in the September. He was studying maths engineering at Bristol. Artificial intelligence became his thing. He was considering a career in AI. And then came home for Christmas, came back from the gym and was complaining that he had a pain in his right shoulder upper back and I was convinced it was just from weights but it wasn't it had come back with real vengeance Mm. in both lungs but I was thinking you've beaten it once you're 20 years old you're going to beat it again but I said this before it came back with much bigger boxing gloves this time and so the chemo started I Try not to go there, but every so often I will take myself to a place where I relive every single hospital visit Emma and I did with Jack, whether it was for a consultation, whether it was for a checkup, whether it was for inpatient chemo, whether it was for outpatient radio. And I think Emma and I have sort of blocked that out because unless you've walked in those shoes you have no capacity to understand what that was like for us and neither would I want anyone to understand what that was like for us and neither would I ever wish it on anyone but it was beyond intense and as you rightly say I was running a business I wanted to be a father to my kids the best father I could still be I wanted to be the best husband I could be to Emma. We both had clear and defined roles in how we were going to manage Jack and our lives. But in our heart of hearts, we knew where this was ending. Jack never once wanted the conversation. Wasn't going to have the conversation. So I only ever spoke about next week, next month, next year, where he was going to live when he moved out of home, what he was going to do how many women he was going to sleep with because that was very high on his agenda. It was always talking positively about the future. It was never about now and what he and we were all going through. And I have to tell you, whatever we were going through was a microcosm because it wasn't happening to us of what he must have been going through. What things were you doing at that time to help you get through the day? Because I, I know what it's like sitting in a hospital room, a hospital bed. You know, what kind of things did you do just to be able to manage and cope and not focus on the stuff that you knew or felt was happening and having to preserve that conversation for Jack in the right way, which obviously would would help, help you and Emma, but there's still the reality that you're physically there and you've split between the house and, and the business. And, and I'm sure... You know, your your colleagues at work were supportive, but there's a lot to sort of manage. And and how did you kind of deal with that? I'd say that for the two years, I was pretty much out of my business and my team did a brilliant job of keeping it alive. 
But Ricky and I started a sitcom. And we started the sitcom before Jack was diagnosed. And then once he was diagnosed, we really got stuck into it. And it was really cathartic. I mean, there were nights we spent laughing over one word late into that night, like little schoolboys. And Ricky and I have always had the ability to make each other laugh because we share a sense of humor. We've written together before. We always had an idea for a sitcom. It helped me get through some very, very dark moments because I could fixate on something that took me outside of my my lived life. Yeah, and almost a positive distraction as well. It really was. I hold Ricky very dear to my heart and our work together really helped take me somewhere else. And we finished the pilot, which we hope to film ourselves soon. We've written the storylines for all of the episodes. This might go nowhere, but we've done it and we're going to do our best to get a a commission and it's really silly it's really funny i always think of jack the working title is press the hash key which we might change to download the app because it's more 2022 than press the hash key is but i think of jack whenever i'm talking about press the hash key or whenever i making a few tweaks or amends to it because it reminds me of a, a time that was obviously very special for the wrong reasons but it shines a really great light on that time. Jack sadly passed away in the August of 2019. Correct. At home, with all of us around him. The last week was very difficult. If we rewind to the, to the June of that year, I remember sitting with Chris Nutting, his consultant, and Andre Devantel, his clinical nurse, who we became very, very close with. Uh, the consultant prescribes the medicine and the clinical nurse gives the love and care. And Andre and our family have become, have become very close. And I remember Chris Nutting looking at Jack, telling him that there's no more they could do for him. And without saying, go and get your affairs in order, it was go and get your affairs in order. And me being me, and Jack had a lot of me in him, thinking, right, I'm not having this. And I'd already started talking to clinicians around the country to try and find a clinical trial. Because for those who have been on this journey will know, and for those that haven't, it's, it's great education that there are cl clinical trials happening the whole time for various diseases and conditions. But what Jack had had only affected less than 100 human beings on the planet. It's very difficult for the drug companies to put money into a clinical trial, which is in the hundreds of millions, if not billions, for a drug that not many people need. Mm. So I'd hit a bit of a brick wall. And I remember seeing Jack looking into the abyss thinking, that's it. And I was thinking, nah, I'm not having that. So I must have made about four to 500 phone calls, wow. emails. And I found a clinical trial in Belgium for his, for his diagnosis. Now, 
if truth be known, he was probably too ill to go, even go on it. But the clinicians want patients for their trial. So we spent a good six weeks going to and from Belgium. And that, this brings me to where we were earlier in that they were six of the best weeks I could spend with him, albeit he was in a lot of pain. He was terminally ill. He looked like he had come out of a concentration camp. He was that thin mm. and that weak. But there were moments. Everything has a crack in it. That's how the light gets in. And the light got in during those six weeks. So the one thing we used to do was we booked into this. We'd get on the Eurostar and we'd book into the same hotel. I say that in a few seconds. It was arduous and painful for him. Yeah. And people would look at him like they knew. And that went through me. Mm. Um, but we'd arrive at the same hotel and we'd get into this big double bed together and we'd watch Europe's Strongest Man on Belgium TV. And we loved it. You know, men who could pull buses uh, that could juggle concrete balls. They, they had no necks. And it just gave us so much pleasure um, during what was a really tough time. I mean, he was prodded and poked and used as a pincushion. He was already on portable oxygen by this stage um i knew that hospital in leuven like the back of my hand and again sometimes when i go to some pretty dark places i walk through those corridors with him and i see the look in people's eyes mm. um and i try not to go there but sometimes when you can't sleep it's difficult not to go to to those places thank you for taking us there today i really appreciate it jack started a blog on instagram when he was first diagnosed which we didn't like because we didn't want him telling the world what was happening but then he, he explained why he had done it he said i don't want your friends driving you mad with the latest news on me what's happening how did that visit go what's the next step so he said i'm going to document it and put it out there and people can read my story but that evolved into the most phenomenal tool and at its peak he had thirty thousand people around the world following his journey because he started to use the internet as a force for good because it was never about jack it was never ever about jack he wanted to inspire people he wanted to educate people he wanted to communicate with others in his place and in the same way that I guess I compartmentalized what was happening to him, he was compartmentalized what was happening to himself. And we were communicated to by people who had never met Jack and we'd never met, saying how his journey had changed their lives for the better. Whether they were ill, whether they had life challenges, whether they were single parents, whatever it was, it was quite phenomenal that he'd left such a mark, such an indelible mark on people around the world from all different backgrounds, races, religions, ages, um, a real legacy. And in his own way, very clearly, he's bringing hope and positivity to people around the world. Yeah, so Lauren Mann, who's part of the Girl Versus Cancer troupe, 
became very friendly with Jack and she's become a very dear and close friend of, of mine. And she created a, a day called Be More Jack. We went on to the uh, BBC Breakfast together, Lauren and myself, to talk about what you can do to make a difference to your life or other people's lives. Because if I have one takeaway from Jack being with us, it's the difference, the positive difference he made to our lives and everybody else's. So there's this movement called Be More Jack. And it could be as simple as that neighbour that lives next door that you've never seen, even though you've lived in your house for 20 years. Go and check up on them. Make a difference to somebody's life because that person could not see anyone 24-7. We can all be a little more Jack. But don't get me wrong, he wasn't a saint. He could have been an, he could have been an absolute pain. In fact, I did hold it together for most of the time. And there were times when he was very ill and there were times when he was very difficult. And I remember one night at the Marsden, I was staying over in the bed next to him and he'd had a shocking night. He couldn't get his pillows right. He was in pain. The doctors didn't know as much as he did, of course. So that irritated him. And I finally got off to sleep at stupid o'clock. And I must have woken myself up with a sneeze or a cough And Jack was really irritated by it. And I remember walking out of the hospital room, going to a quiet area, ringing Emma, who was at home. It's now seven o'clock. And she thought I was ringing to see what sort of night he'd had and to tell her. I said, my darling, I said, I'm going to tell you this only once. If the cancer doesn't kill him, I'm going to. And it was the only time I ever lost it in the two years. Um, but I look back. I look back at that moment with fondness because I think I was allowed my moment. You know, you'd had a night of just you know on top of other nights, I'm sure, and that humour that only you and your wife could share at that moment. You know, probably lifted you for the next twenty minutes so you could go and it, deal with Jack it, and his pillow. Or it was it really did. But as as a parent, your greatest achievement may not be what you do, but who you raise. And I feel that our greatest achievement was raising Jack and our other three. When Jack passed, and in that moment, and the days that followed, what did you do to get through? So, although I am not at all religious, I don't believe in God. I have become spiritual, and I do believe in energy. I believe we can plug in and out of that energy. The moment he passed, I believed, I still believe, and I will always believe that Jack went to another place. And there was comfort in me believing, I can't say knowing, because I don't know. That's the essence of faith. There was comfort in knowing that Jack was now not in pain. His physical being wasn't here, so he wasn't in physical pain. And he was in a place where I couldn't talk to him, not a two-way conversation. And I couldn't see him and I couldn't touch him. But knowing that when I leave this place, I will be reunited with him. And I've got nothing to support that belief. Again, the essence of faith. But in the Jewish religion, even though I'm not an observant Jew, we have something called shiva. When someone you love passes, 
we in our religion bury within 24 hours, which is probably not a bad thing because your head isn't there and it's all a bit of a blur and it's out the way. And I know in other faiths, there's a, a, a period of mourning and there's a time to wait and that can cause maybe anxiety. I don't know. But we didn't have the pain of waiting for that service. And then we have seven days of mourning where people come and visit you. It's called Shiva. And in Hebrew, sh Shiva is the number seven. So seven nights, we only sat Shiva for three of those nights. And during the day, people can come and pay their respects. And it was the summer. The weather was beautiful. We've got a garden. And it was a bit like a party. Because you can imagine Jack's friends were there. Joshua's friends were there. Sam and Charlotte's friends were there. You know, I don't have to tell you what it's like when your kids have got all their friends around. And it's slightly unorthodox for a shiver house because normally it's quite dark and depressing. And the subject is depressing and very dark and tragic. But this was this was summertime. You know, the the, the, the windows were open, the light was in the house. And it was something that I was dreading, but I absolutely loved. So to your question, our house was filled with a lot of love, a lot of youth, a lot of sunshine. And people staying at our house late into the evening talking about Jack. And it, it, sounds, it sounds rude to say it was party time, but, but it sort of was. Celebration. It was a celebration of... Jack's life and I haven't stopped celebrating Jack's life and I will never stop celebrating Jack's life. He went back to university as you know and the cancer returned so he wasn't able to sit his degree in three years so he did it in two. <laughs> he actually completed his degree in maths engineering while he was undergoing more chemo which oh, is a testament amazing. to his strength mm. Mm. And, and resilience. Yeah, resilience. He was, and I was about to use the word ardor. He was given by the university an award for ardor, and they've subsequently renamed it the Jack Morgan Award for ardor, and it is given every year to an exceptional student at Bristol University. And in years to come, when we've all left, somebody may want to look up who Jack Morgan was and why this award was named after him. Another legacy. Yeah, without meaning to as well. Just being Jack, right? Just being Jack. The the blog and the Instagram account, are they still going so people can find out how Very to Very much so. So when there are milestones in our work for Jack, I will always post on my account, which has a pathetic number of followers because I'm a 55-year-old man who doesn't really do social media, or... You can visit Jack's account, which is it's me, I-T-S-M-E, it's me, underscore J-M-O. And there you can, if you wish, go back to the very start from day one, which will take you up to present day. I wouldn't say it's a fun account, but there are some very fun moments in it. From an education perspective, there's a lot to learn and you'll get a real feel for who Jack is. Grant, thank you so much for joining us on the Eddie Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a wonderful experience and I have genuinely loved every moment of it. Thank you. It's been a true privilege to have you with us. 
Thank you for listening to this episode from the Eddie podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear the next story. And don't forget to leave us a review or a rating as it helps others to find the podcast more easily so we can share these stories with more people. And if you'd like to share your story, then visit us at www.eddie.network and click on share where you can send us your story and some pics. And if you prefer to, you can let us know you like to keep it anonymous. So the more stories we can share, the more dads that we can help. So thanks again. And remember, keep moving forward.